Howdy. Welcome to another week of Cannon Calls. This week, I had on Mark Dewey, who's a former Major League Baseball pitcher who has a podcast across the street at Cross Politic on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. You can find him there at In the Bullpen Podcast. We talk all things baseball, which means the brand new rules that were introduced to players versus owner kerfuffles and whether or not Barry Bonds should be in the Hall of Fame. It's all very fun and maybe a break for those of you who have been languishing under the poetry episodes. Here's a baseball episode. Cheers. All right, welcome to another episode of Cannon Calls. Now welcoming on special guest, former pitcher in Major League Baseball, and now host of In the Bullpen podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network, Mark Dewey. Thanks so much for giving us your time, sir. Thank you for having me on, Jake. Of course. So let's first establish your baseball bona fides. Can you tell us about who you are and your time in the, in the sport? Sure. Uh, I would say the easiest way to sum it up is for almost 50 years, I've been involved in baseball. Uh, as a coach, I've coached from Little League through the minor leagues, including being a, a pitching coordinator. And as a player, I played from Little League to the Major League. Uh, I was in the Major Leagues from 1990 to 1996, with the exception of 91. I spent the whole year that season in AAA. Okay. What, what was that original team that you played for? I was drafted and came up through the minor leagues and first got to the Major Leagues with the San Francisco Giants in 1990. Uh, and then I was with the Mets and the Pirates, and then I came back and finished my career in San Francisco with the Giants in 1995 and 96. Awesome. Are, are there any of those teams that, given your experience, you're, you're partial to? Did you like any of them more than the others? It depends. Like, like typically, if they were in the playoffs, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to root for a team I played for, especially if there are still people remaining in any capacity with those teams. So, so it just depends. Now right. this year I didn't have to worry about that because none of them were in. Um, <laughs> but but you know, and I coached with the Brewers for eight years, and there's still a decent number of players in the big leagues and a whole lot of staff that I worked with. So uh, you know, the Brewers would be a team that if they were still in it, I would be rooting for. It might. It's also kind of convenient. I don't know that you'll ever have to worry about the Mets maybe getting into the postseason <laughs> for the next few years. So, um, <laughs> so baseball has been in the news the last few years. Uh, well, for many things, but. Pertaining to this question, in terms of, uh, it seems like, how do we make this more watchable, possibly, is sort of the the motivation behind it. So I'm thinking in terms of the extra inning rules that have been put in place. Uh, are, are you a purist? What do, what do you think about these kind of moving the sport around like that? Uh, I would say, generally speaking, I would call myself a purist or old school, but I would want to qualify that because sometimes those terms get used to say, well, here's a person who refuses to see any need for change. And I'm definitely not that. Okay. Uh, I am not, I'm not a big fan of the extra inning rule. I experienced it as a pitching coordinator, seeing it in the minor leagues. It makes a bit more sense in the minor leagues because you have a situation where if you run into a 15 or a 16 or an 18 inning game, you don't have much ability to get new pitchers to your team the next day. Whereas in the major leagues, you do. Can you actually unpack what those are, what those rules are for our, our listeners if they don't know? Sure. So once you go into extra innings, it had been used in the minor leagues for some time, I guess the last two or three years. They used it during the regular season at the major league level this year. They are not using it in the postseason. And it is this. 
when you get two extra innings, as opposed to starting the inning clean like you have for the first nine innings, you begin the inning with a runner on second base and nobody else. So whoever made the last out the inning before starts out on second base, and then you go through the lineup as you normally would. So you automatically have a guy on second base, nobody out as you get into extra innings. And then as it relates to pitchers? Well, the pitcher, like let's say that I come in in the 10th inning to start the inning, and there's a runner on second base. If I give up that run, that run is an unearned run to my pitching record. So it does not in any way affect my ERA. It does, however, affect wins and losses because if I get a ground ball to second and the runner moves to third and then a sacrifice fly and the runner scores in a strikeout, I've just had a one, two, three inning. The run is unearned. But if we come back in the, in the 10th, let's say if we were the home team and don't score, I get a loss. So right. it hurts the reliever in that way. Now, there's also, in terms of the bullpen, are there not additional rules there in terms of how many times? Like, I think, doesn't every new pitcher has to see, all, like, three batters? Yeah, it, it, again, that's new this year. Okay. Each pitcher that comes in out of the bullpen has to face three batters or finish the inning. Okay. So, if you bring me in and there's two outs and I get the next guy out, and the inning ends, I do not have to face three batters. But if you bring me in with nobody out, and I give up a double and a home run, and now a guy who has absolutely crushed me my whole career is up to bat, you can't <laughs> take me out. I've got to face that particular hitter. Right, right. So, uh, Mark, you've been in the sport for quite some time. Um, as they try to finagle ways uh, either to speed the sport up or to make it more watchable, you mentioned you're not a big fan of these rules, but you're also not a purist in the sense of never wanting to see change. If you were king for a day, what, what would you be looking at? What are things that you would want to see changed in the sport? Well, I, I tell you one thing, that because everybody always talks about not the time of the game, although that can get outrageous on occasion, but the pace of play. Okay. That it just moves too slowly. And now it's going to sound like I'm a purist in, in one degree, because I will tell you what a big time constraint is, at least in the minor leagues. I've not been at major league ballparks as often in the last several years, but all of the walk-up music takes a lot of time. Obviously, <laughs> commercials do. That's another issue. Right. But all these walk-up songs, sometimes the guy won't get in the box until his song gets to a certain point and he hears the part he really likes. Right. Uh, the, the other issue is, I think that with all that's going on, there is a general approach as a pitcher that is going to require more time between pitches. Now, there are exceptions. A, a, a great exception is a guy I had back in, in A-ball, Brett Suter with the Brewers. Uh, that guy can throw five pitches in the length of time it takes most people to throw one. Um, but there are a lot of things, just like they talk about a pitch clock. Well, if they would just enforce the rules as they are now on the book, the pitch clock wouldn't be needed. Okay. The, the batter, a lot of times, the batter's not supposed to. If he takes a ball, unless it's a ball that brushes it back, if he takes a ball, he's supposed to keep one foot in the batter's box. Right. And so let's say there's somebody on base, he's got to get a sign, he keeps one foot in the batter's box, gets the sign, he gets back in. I think some of those things would help immensely. And those are just rules that are already on the book. Right. Um, and then I think, again, I think we've made things, I don't want to say more complicated than they need to be, but I think that with all of the information that's out there now, um, I don't think pitchers are learning to read swings. And by that, I mean, I throw a particular pitch and the hitter reacts and does something. Let's say he pulls it hard foul. I think that there's a loss of the ability to read that swing and make an adjustment. Say, okay, the next 
pitch for me to throw this guy is, whatever it might be. I think there's just a lot of information out there that takes a lot of time to work through. Okay. And a lot of people say, well, that, that's what makes pitchers even better. Well, maybe. But if you're talking about pace of play, I, I think there are a number of things that slow down the pace of play. Like I said, rules already on the books that they were enforced would speed it up. And then some of the in-depth analytics that go into a pitcher's head between each pitch, I think that slows things down as well. So as a pitcher, I mean, what, and a pitching coach, do you like the pitching clock? You're saying with the rules already on the books, they wouldn't be needed, additional rules. Again, I've been around a pitch clock right. um, in the minor leagues. It almost never comes into effect. They cheat in the sense of if the clock is running down, uh, the person running the clock can just shut it off, which I've seen happen. <laughs> All the pitcher has to do is step off. But oh, generally right. speaking, usually if the pitch clock expires and a pitch hasn't been thrown, generally speaking, and I know this is going to sound like a pitching guy that, that's just blaming it on the hitters, but generally speaking, it is. It's usually the hitter who takes a while to get into the box. And, of course, the pitcher cannot get his sign until the batter's in the box. That usually is what the greatest delay is, is how long it takes the, the hitter to get in the box. Well, another thing in the news that I wanted to make sure I got your opinion on is, the, for example, this season, we weren't really sure if the majors would be back or when they'd be back because there was sort of an owner's player showdown, which obviously the professional sports are no, you know, there's, there's no strangers to that situation. In general, to baseball fans like myself, these kind of showdowns are explained to us from the media, which can either you know shroud motivations of the owners or the players or what have you. So could you give us sort of a behind-the-scenes look on what's happening in that situation? Is it, are the, all the owners bad, evil guys, and all, are all the players? Can you give a little, shed a little light on that? Sure, as much as I can. I would say the answer is obviously not all the owners are bad, evil guys, and obviously not all the players are good guys. Right. It is a business, and of course, at the end of next season, or in December of next year, uh, the basic agreement is going to come to an end, and something something has to get done, or there could be a shutdown not related to COVID-19. I think both the owners and players this year understood that they had to get something done to make sure some portion of the season was played. Uh, it was only 60 games, which I think was really the intent of the owners from the get-go, uh, but now they're going to, you know, barring something very strange happening, they're going to have a full postseason with six extra teams. And so it's all worked out well. But we have next season to play and then the basic agreement. Right. I have said this before, and again, it's generalization that I think is accurate, but it's not saying that it is so of every owner or every player, but I think it's so collectively of ownership as a group and the commissioner and the players association and the people that play the game as a group. Players want to play, and I played at a time, I actually first got to the big leagues the year that there was a lockout. It was a big reason why I got to the big league fight that year, because the, the Giants general manager, Al Rosen, and the manager of the team, big league team, Roger Craig, were on the minor league side of things during that lockout. Then I went through the strike of 94 and into 95. Generally speaking, the players as a group collectively want to play, and they want to stand and, and uphold what the people who have come before him, before them have gained. So the people that sacrificed from a Kurt Flood into the strike of 1981, in, into other work stoppages, the players generally say, okay, the people that have come before us, the reason we have it as good as we do is because of the players that have come before us 
And we have an obligation to pass the baton on to the next generation of players. Mm -hmm. Again, not everybody thinks that way. Some players are just like, I want my money. That's all I care about. But collectively, at least in my experience, that's the idea that the players have. Now, the owners are businessmen, right? Some owners are huge fans of the game of baseball. They love the game of baseball. Almost all players do. But owners are businessmen. Players typically are not. And so the owners approach it from a different perspective. And again, you only have to get 30 owners on board, or at least the majority of 30 owners, where you have in the neighborhood of 1,200 plus players, a part of the players union. So it makes it easier on the one hand for the owners to stay together than the players. And yet, historically, the players have done a pretty good job staying together. And again, my argument would be it's because they realize what they have was given to them by the sacrifice of players before them. And they don't want to give that up to just to be selfish and get what they can today. Now, I know, uh, of course, knowing not only knowing the platform that you podcast on and the rest, I also am familiar with your feed. You're, you're a conservative guy. Generally, when I hear these kinds of things go down, I'm also a conservative. I think the media is really having like a real like Charles Dickens flourishing moment where the owners are... Prima facie, I mean, and I know you said you don't believe that, but prima facie, the media usually will tell us these are wicked guys running a slave ship. And I generally, my assumption maybe might be, okay, the players just aren't playing ball with the owners. Being a player and, and kind of seeing all that happen, is there stuff that you would want to like tell somebody like me as a conservative? Like, well, it's not actually like that. How would you talk to a conservative necessarily that's like, that would be like, well, the players might have a good point here. Well, again, I would say I do not know. I've met owners, obviously, but I do not have any kind of a relationship, nor have I with owners. I have been, I've met them. I've had some brief conversations with a few, but generally speaking, I don't know owners. I know players. I was one. I've been around them since the 1987 professional. But I will, I, and, and, I, and from what I've read, there are owners that are conservative from a political standpoint. Sure. Okay. But the issue is, the way I look at it is this, and then I'll tell a little story. I believe that ownership as a whole is more like a progressive bureaucratic government. <laughs> Players as a whole embrace more of a federalistic and subsidiarity kind of mindset. And, and I really see that being the, the ultimate difference is that ownership, again, there's fewer of them. Obviously, there's smart businessmen. They've made not only millions, but billions of dollars in many cases. That's how they can own a team. Right. And they're going to, when push comes to shove, their decision is going to be ultimately what's best from a business standpoint. And for a lot of these owners, sometimes a strike or a lockout may be best from a business standpoint. For players, as a rule, they're going to say what's in the best interest of the game, at the very least, of their handing it on to the next generation. So now the story. I was with the Mets in 1992. I played in the big leagues in 1990, not at all 1991. Now I'm in New York with the Mets in 1992. Being in New York, uh, the, the Players Association was housed in New York City. Don Fear, who at that time was the head, would come in often to Chase Stadium to have meetings with us. And a guy on that team was Eddie Murray, who would be a Hall of Famer a few years removed. And every time we had a meeting, Eddie Murray would raise his hand and he would say, Don, tell these young guys where we've come from. 
And Hedy's Hedy's whole point in that, he was an older guy, his career was winding down, he was about to retire, and then ultimately get elected to the Hall of Fame. And he knew how good it was in the early 90s, and he knew that in comparison to the mid-70s when he first got to the big league. And he wanted to make sure all of us in that room, and there were a lot of us at that time with the Mets who who are in our first or second year of Major League Baseball, he wanted us to know the sacrifices of the people, like I said, a Kurt Flood and Andy Messersmith, the players who had been uh, on strike before, had been locked out before, what they did and why they did it so that we would understand a responsibility to conserve, talk about conservatives, conserve what has been given to us in order to pass it on. Because I would say there's a degree of, you know, Major League Baseball is exempt from antitrust laws, okay? If I get drafted by a team, I can either sign with that team or hang with them unless I can go back into school. And at one time, until Kurt Flood challenged it and then Messersmith and uh, McNally and the like, there was nothing you could do. The ownership had complete control of you. And through Marvin Miller and through the players and the Players Association and then Don Fear and so on and so forth, that the players were given more freedom and more ability to negotiate and more ability to have some leverage. Hmm. And so Eddie Murray's big thing was all these young guys here in the early 90s, they realized they got it good. What they need to realize is how come they've got it good and what their responsibility is to make sure that the people that play in 2002 have it good. Right. And, and I, and you know, again, I, I'm going to be biased to a degree because I know a lot of players. I've been around the players. I was a player rep for two years when I was with the Giants in '95 and '96 after the strike. So there are there are there are bad people and good people on both sides. But collectively, players are by nature in the way they go about the labor negotiations more conservative, typically speaking, than ownership. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Sweet. So, and actually one more question on that. So one thing that I continue to hear from folks in this past year as the showdown happened was, well, the owners just actually need to release the books. They need to release the books and prove that, you know, this is going to be a really big issue. What do you think about that? Would you, would you have agreed that they need to release the books? I agree that if they want to prove their point, they need to release the books. They will never release the books unless it's enforced upon them by a change in being exempt from antitrust laws and other things. They're not going to do that. Right. So, if- yes, if they wanted to prove their point, yes, they would release the books and, and let the books be examined by somebody that can see how it is that the books might declare a huge loss, but maybe it's not what it appears to be. Okay. Now, in terms of the sort of inheriting a lot of blessings and then making sure you conserve that and maybe you even make it better for the guys in the next few years, as you've watched the majors uh, from whether it was the time you were in it to now, what do you think about it? Has it been improved upon? Has it been, or has it been losses? What, what are you, what is your thoughts of the state of baseball? Well, I think there have been more losses in the last, uh, I don't know, five to 10 years by the players association. And in some cases, I think a lot of it is pressure. I'll give you a classic example. I do not believe in mandatory drug testing for major league baseball or anybody really. Um, <laughs> I don't believe I don't believe that that solves any problems whatsoever, and and I, I and I don't believe you should be presumed guilty until proven innocent. But that's a loss, right? Like I would say that Marvin Miller would have never gone that direction. Now I don't know Marvin Miller. Uh, he was still alive when I was playing, and 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 people that I played with had been a part of the union when he was the head of the union. But I, I don't I don't believe that that's a good thing. 
Now, and Mark, forgive me different. for asking, but are you just holding the San Francisco giant Barry Bonds company line here, Mark? Not at all. I'm just kidding. Believe, I'm, giving you, I'm giving you a hard time. <laughs> I know, but, I, but it, is a good, it is a good question. I, I played with Barry Bonds. I locked her next to him for two years. I got along with him fine. Some, and, and the other thing I'll say is this. Were you the guy breaking up the fights with him and Jeff? I mean, how did that go? That was before Jeff Kent was there. Okay, I played with right. Jeff Kent in New York, and I was in San Francisco. I was gone before Jeff Kent got there. So got it. Okay. No issues like that. Okay. But um, just like I say, nobody cheated with the use of steroids or HGH prior to, I think it was 2003 or 2004, when it actually became uh, against the rules by collective bargaining. So they may have done something immoral. They definitely did something illegal if they were using steroids in, in a manner that, that wasn't legal. But were they cheating the game? I would say no, because it wasn't against the rules. Hmm. Now, did, did I feel like I got cheated? Well, I guess to a degree, I did not use steroids or HGH. I didn't know what HGH was when I was playing. I knew what steroids were. <laughs> but I didn't use steroids. And so obviously, a lot of the guys I played against had an advantage. But even then, I don't feel like they cheated me or cheated the game because it wasn't against the rules. You know, amphetamines have been around forever. Right. And people had used amphetamines forever, including probably almost every single guy in the Hall of Fame. Well, those are performance-enhancing drugs, different than steroids are, but nonetheless, they are performance-enhancing drugs. Well, I don't hold it against any Hall of Famer that used them and say they cheated, because at the time that, that the vast majority of the people in the Hall of Fame used them, it was not against the rules. Now, in 2000, I think it was 2003, it might have been 2004, when all of those things became illegal, now... If you use them, you've cheated. And if you get caught, test positive, whatever the case may be, then you're a cheater. And then I believe you forfeited your right to any kind of awards or prizes like the Hall of Fame. But I don't think somebody should be denied that because of accusations that are thrown out there. There needs to be evidence and the, and the person needs to be proven guilty. So if Mark's king for a day, does Barry Bonds get in the Hall of Fame? Based on what I know, again, I understand all the circumstantial evidence would say, you. And if somebody had a gun to my head and my living or dying was based upon whether I got the answer correct, and they said, did he or didn't he, I would answer yes. That being said, to my knowledge, there has been no proof in the sense of positive tests, multiple witnesses, all of those kinds of things. Same thing with Roger Clemens, to my knowledge. Now, I could be wrong. I might lack information. But to my knowledge, neither one of them were proven there were not two or three witnesses. There, there was not a positive test. They weren't proven to have cheated. And so in that case, yes, I believe they belong in the Hall of Fame. Okay. Okay, that was a great answer. Now, as you look back on your career, are there moments that you have that you think, like, these are the ones, and I'm sure you already, you know, maybe you're already there, but uh, are you a grandfather? I am. Okay, so are there moments that you are excited to tell your grandkids about over and over again? Well, what are some of those stories? Do you have any of those? <laughs> well, yeah, that's an interesting question in the sense that my playing career seems like it was a different life. I mean, it, it's been so <laughs> long, right? You know, so I've been done in the big leagues for 25 years. And as a rule, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't get brought up much. Now, I have some old video. The Pirates sent me a bunch of video that some of my children have seen, but I don't even know if all of them have. But if I start to think about it, 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 I guess a lot depends upon where the conversation is going. So, for instance, if you had asked me this question at the Fight Laugh Peace Conference, and, and maybe the question of, you know, your brush with fame, at a conference like the Fight Laugh Peace Conference, I would say, well, with well, the people here, it depends. 
On the one hand, for some of you, probably the thing you'd be most impressed about is, and I was actually done playing, but I threw batting practice to Dr. R.C. Sproul. <laughs> so that would probably impress a lot of people at the Fight Life East Conference. Yeah, yeah. But for baseball people, and this is, again, not playing, I can get to some of those, but for huge baseball fans, I would say, well, one time in the lunchroom in San Francisco, I played cards with two other guys. And somebody would go, yeah, well, I'm sure that happens all the time. Well, it does. But in this particular situation, the two men I was playing cards with were Barry Bonds and Willie Mays. <laughs> and when I think about that, in my opinion, those two guys, if you're going to talk about the best players ever in the history of Major League Baseball, those two guys have to be among the shortlist. And here's Mark Dewey, just an average middle reliever, playing, I don't even remember what game we were playing, but sitting at a table in the lunchroom at Candlestick Park playing cards with Willie Mays and Barry Bonds. That is wild. Uh, along those lines, at Candlestick, I was in a locker. I, I said I locker next to Barry Bonds for two years. Well, there were three lockers in that row. So if you were facing them, left would be Barry Bonds, middle would be me, and then there was one on the right. And that, that had changed a lot as far as who lockered there. Well, to the left of Barry Bonds was the entrance to the shower. To the right of that third locker was the entrance to the bathroom. So those three lockers were kind of isolated in the middle of the clubhouse. So for two years, looking left to right, it was Barry Bonds and Mark Dewey, and then it kind of rotated. Well, at the end of one season, the San Francisco Giants in hopes that this person would sign to play with the San Francisco 49ers, traded for Deion Sanders. Wow. And so for a, for a period of time, it was Barry Bonds, Mark Dewey, and Deion Sanders. That is epic. That is awesome. And, and, and here's the thing. <laughs> At this time, they didn't have all the press rooms and stuff like we do today. Right. So post-game, people, the reporters would come to the locker of the player they wanted to talk to. There wasn't a room for people to go into. I think it's great that they have the room. So here I am trying to get into my locker at the end of a game, and there are 17,000 reporters around my locker because to the right of me is Bonds and to the left of me is, is Deion Sanders. <laughs> and, and neither one of those guys are in their lockers. So I got all these reporters, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me. And so finally, I knew a lot of the ones, especially the beat writers, and I looked up, and they're waiting for either one of those two guys to show up and talk to them. And I said, hey, guys, you know what? I, I just realized, I, I kind of wondered, you got Barry, you got me, you got Deion. I'm, I've wondered, how does this all fit? I said, I finally figured it out. And they looked at me and I said, we all make about the same kind of money. And they just busted out. <laughs> that is epic. Did you get to talk with Dion? I mean, obviously you'd lockered next to him. I don't know what locker conversations are like, but I'm sure uh, as a Braves fan, that excites me quite a bit. Well, I will say this. I did get to talk to Dion. He only spent a couple months with us. And the, the, the end of the story was, I remember we were in Chicago. So the Giants trade for Dion. He was with the Reds. We trade for Dion Sanders. He comes to finish the season with the Giants. He was a free agent in the NFL, and the Niners wanted to sign him. And then, I, I don't know, six weeks later, we're in Chicago, and he, he walks out of the bus. He goes, gentlemen, I want to tell you all something before it becomes public, but I have just uh, decided to sign with the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, anyway, he, I did have conversations and was in the midst, let's say, of conversations because I was between the two with him and Barry. Yeah. Deion Sanders was prime time or right. neon Dion when the cameras were on. Okay. When he was in a clubhouse interacting, he was as humble and kind and soft-spoken as a guy you'd ever want to meet. That's awesome. He, uh, he had a ranch that was like 15 minutes outside of my hometown where I grew up. So it was always cool to like look out and just know that's Dion's ranch. Um, <laughs> so this story means a lot. 
So I, I mentioned I was a big Braves fan. My first time to see the Braves live was actually in San Francisco. And I was born in 91. So that was right around Chipper's rookie year. My, my favorite player by far. And uh, he gets up to the plate. I want to say first pitch. At, I forget where they are now. It's not Minimade. What's the ballpark now in San Francisco? Oh, I don't know. It's changed names so many times. I don't even know what they call it. Anymore. I wondered if it was even... AT&T. Yeah, I wondered if it was even the same one. I wasn't sure if it would be the same one you played in or not, but I think first pitch, home run. And it was probably the American boys' dream come true. Favorite player, first pitch. And if you saw that game at the new ballpark, whatever they call it these days, I can't remember. It was originally called Pac Bell. I did not play in that. I think that's opened up in 2000, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Now, one question. Is there, I'd love to know, so just as a general baseball guy, were there any hitters in your career that just gave you the roughest time? <laughs> yes, two. One's a Hall of Famer. Okay. And, and my numbers against Hall of Famers are really good, except for this guy. Okay. And the other was a very good player for a time, for a stretch. But he absolutely owned me when he was really, really good. He owned me when he was mediocre, and he owned me when he was at the end of his career hitting less than 200. So the <laughs> Hall of Famer that, that did well against me was Barry Larkin. Okay. And the, the guy who had some all-star season, but not a Hall of Famer, that owned me was Howard Jones. Okay. <laughs> what teams were you on during that? Well, I played with Hojo in New York, so I would have faced Larkin. Think if I faced him. Yeah, I would have faced him with Definitely with the Giants and the Mets. I can't remember if I faced Larkin when I was with the Pirates. And then Hojo I would have faced with the Giants and the uh, Pirates because I didn't face them, obviously, when we were teammates in New York. Awesome. Awesome. Now, are you coaching currently? I am not. Okay. I spent the last eight years with the Brewers, the last two years as a pitching coordinator, but I'm not in professional baseball uh, at this time. Okay. Okay. So now your podcast in the bullpen, was that your idea? Did you come up with that in terms of doing one? Yeah, I would say yes, kind of. What, what it was is we've listened to Cross Politic pretty much since the beginning. Okay. And after I knew last September that I was done in professional baseball, or at least my intention was to be done, we were listening to Cross Politic, and, and in particular, Gabe and Chalk Knox would talk about, you know, we want to expand, we want to have a sports podcast, et cetera, et cetera. And my family would keep saying, Dad, 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 you need to, you need to contact him. Dad, Dad, Dad. <laughs> and so then finally, after giving it some thought, I think it was January, maybe February, I sent an email to Gabe and, and to Toby and to Chalk that here's who I am. Here's, here's a thought. Here's an idea. What do you all think? And then it kind of took off and, and progressed rather rapidly from there. If somebody were to subscribe, which they all should go do, what can they expect weekly from you? Well, what I try to do weekly is deal with what's going on in baseball. And obviously right now that would be postseason information more than anything else. But I always try to figure out how to see it from, from a biblical perspective and tie it in to a, a biblical teaching of some sort. So I try to have, regardless of where I go, I try to have a thread that runs through it all that brings it back ultimately to the Word of God, inscripturated and incarnate. So that's my goal each week. Uh, I think I've had one podcast that I didn't have. It was just pure baseball. I mean, obviously, a worldview would still come true on that. But I didn't bring any scripture references or any direct encouragement about application to a Christian fan or a Christian ball player or whatever the case may be. But generally speaking, that's what I'm going to do. So I try to because I, you know I realize I can't I can't compete with ESPN as it regards the research and all of that, and it's only a weekly podcast. So I'm thinking, okay. Well, 
why would people want to hear my podcast? And if I talk about what happened, you know, my podcast drops every Monday morning. If I talk about what happened on, uh, you know, the Wednesday before, it may have been hugely exciting, but by Monday, it's kind of old news. Right. But I'll still bring it in if that old news can tie into something that is applicable on that day. Right. How has the podcast experience gone? I think it's going well. It helped a lot being at the Fight Laugh Feast conference because a lot of people, I was very surprised actually, came up to me and told me how much they they enjoyed it, appreciated it, including people that said, you know, I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I love your podcast. And so that was very encouraging to know to know that people are listening, but also that, that they actually are, are being blessed or, or encouraged by it. That was very, very beneficial for me to hear. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, Mark, do you have any postseason predictions? Do you do predictions on the podcast? I don't do a lot of predictions. Uh, I did say that that at, at the beginning of the season, my easy pick would be Dodgers-Yankees in the World Series. My out-of-the-box pick would be Padres-Rays. I might be 0 for 4. I could be 2 for 4. I don't know. You were one right pick now, off, I, I feel like. I mean, you were one pick. That was a pretty good pick. I mean, the, the Yankees lost to the Rays, and, you know, the Dodgers are the Dodgers are playing the Braves, so. Right. And I would say, as it stands now, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult for the Astros to come back down 3-0. It's only been done once in the history of the game when the Red Sox beat the Yankees I think it was 2003, 2004. Yep. Uh, it's going to be very, very hard. So I've got to take the Rays and the AL. Okay. I do believe, as good as the Braves have been, sorry to say this to you, the Dodgers, <laughs> Mark. The Dodgers it, it all is going to bake on tonight, I think. Yeah. So if Kershaw has a Kershaw kind of game in the sense of the, the overarching career, it's going to be one thing. If he has the kind of game where he struggled in the postseason, I think tonight's the big night. I think if the Braves win tonight, again, 3-1 deficit's not impossible to overcome, but I think it's going to make it very, very hard on the Braves. But if the Dodgers win tonight, we might see a seven-game series. I think it'll be exciting for <laughs> All right, Mark. Well, thank you so much, man, for coming on. I really appreciate it. I think uh, the last few weeks, uh, somehow, just the way I've lined up interviews, my audience has, has gotten through some poetry episodes, so I wanted to switch it up. Get some poetry in motion with baseball here, and you've been a fantastic interview. I hope everyone goes and subscribes to In the Bullpen. And Mark, I'd love to have you as a recurring guest. Maybe uh, we could talk World Series. I'd love to have you on anytime you'd like to come. I appreciate that, Jake. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. Thanks, sir.